Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the space and help lead the charge towards a more decentralized web. everybody, welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm Diana Chen, your host, and I'm here today with my co-host, Matthew Gold, co-founder and CEO of Unstoppable Domains, and Calvin Liu, strategy lead at Compound Finance. Hey, Calvin, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, Matt, good to have you here as always. So, Calvin, to start off, I'm just curious, how did you get into crypto in the first place? Uh, the the way I first heard about Bitcoin was back in about 2013. I worked for a consulting firm here in San Francisco uh, that traditionally advised financial services companies, so banks and lending institutions, things like that. Um, and we're really lucky we started a fintech group back in 2013, right when Bitcoin was sort of hitting a little bit of, um, I guess, like mass awareness. And so back in 2013, we had as clients Coinbase, Ripple, Kraken, Bitstamp, Gemini, Andreessen Horowitz. And that's when I first heard about Bitcoin. I was pretty deep in in kind of the Bitcoin world relatively in 2013 and 14, a little bit out of it in 2015 and 16, and then have been all in since 2007. Okay, so you were one of the very early adopters of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So when you were first hearing about Bitcoin back in 2013, how did you go about learning about it? What were some of the best resources you found, whether it was books or blogs or Twitter accounts that you followed or whatever the case may be? Now I think back on it, and I think even my understanding of Bitcoin at that time was not very good, at least compared to now. And part of that is there are a lot fewer resources back then. So I think like Bitcoin talk was a pretty good resource at that time. You know, the, the Bitcoin meetups in San Francisco were at like Andreas Antonopoulos's house. Uh, so I remember going to a few of those and yeah, just trying to pick up what I could all over the place on the internet, trying to understand what this thing was and the implications, but certainly it, it wasn't easy. I don't think I even had a very good picture of really what Bitcoin was and how it worked uh, at a deeper level at a technical level until even like 2017, quite frankly. Yeah. And now that you're, you know, sort of an expert in the space, how would you explain what cryptocurrency is to somebody who's brand new to learning about crypto for the first time? Well, one of the things that's changed from 2013 a lot is back then it was just Bitcoin. And now it's so much more than that in crypto. It's just recently, maybe last year uh, or in the past six months, gotten to the point where I feel like I don't know everything that's going on. I don't at least have a sense of everything that's going on in crypto. And now there are areas I don't know anything about. Um, so that's kind of a caveat to say that I, I think it'd be really hard to put everything under one umbrella at this point. But I think kind of the key principles are crypto and cryptocurrency are built on a technology, the blockchain, that enables openly accessible, uncensorable, and sort of transparent products for people to use versus what's available on like Web 2.0 internet today, where a lot of the most popular products are either have some sort of gatekeeping or close access, 
are have centralized control um, and are very non-transparent. Yeah. So like you said, cryptocurrency is evolving very rapidly and that can be um, hard to keep up with. And that can be a barrier to entry for newbies out there that are just trying to get into the space. But what are some other obstacles that you see that are preventing widespread adoption of crypto or just preventing some of the general public from getting into the space? Yeah, this is a very top of mind question um, because with like the recent price action in crypto, I have a lot of friends and family and, you know, people I haven't talked to in eight years kind of texting and being like, hey, how are you doing? And and they genuinely, I think, have some spark of interest of wanting to learn about cryptocurrency and dive in. And there really isn't like one place to point people. I think it's a, a little bit of an issue with the space. If you really want to get up to speed really quick in crypto, depending on which sector of crypto you're interested in, I feel like you have to be so plugged into these very, you have to be like very internet savvy. You have to be on Reddit and Twitter and Discord and Telegram and operate in these like pseudonymous, amorphous communities a lot over the place, which is just to say there aren't good rails to get into crypto. And maybe that's the way most new technologies kind of start. Like I imagine the internet or personal computers way back when, you know, you had to go find a club in a garage somewhere to find people who cared about the same things as you. And now you kind of have to do that online. But certainly I just think that there's a little bit of a gap in education around crypto. And in lots of ways, the people that know a lot about crypto don't have a huge incentive to do that education because they're able to like gain an advantage from having proprietary information about how the space works. Well, I think I think you hit on a lot of things there. I'm actually kind of curious, how many different Slack groups or Discord? I basically have like infinite Slack, you know, yeah. like like in, in Discord groups, like it just goes on for forever. So just to give us give us a sense, like how many of you, I mean, I'm, I'm currently in like five to seven that I check regularly. And then mm-hmm. I have like another, I have another like 20 to 30 that I'm like kind of a little bit disinterested in, you know, but I'm, I'm yeah. checking it every now and then. Um, but it really is a lot of information. I think people underestimate it. And when they're coming in, when people are coming to get crypto, like everyone who's texting you right now because they want to buy because they see the Bitcoin price is high. And uh, it's like, how long will it take me to understand this? I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like it's, it's like months, you know, and like, it's like you know, like and, and, the, and like you're saying, it keeps changing. So, you know, I think it's going to take what I like to tell people is like, just don't immediately go and just buy without learning anything. And a lot of these places are doing a better job on um, education. But this actually leads into another thing because you're, you guys over at Compound, I would say along with MakerDAO are, are one of the uh, leaders in this new DeFi space, which has just made the whole thing a lot more complex, right? Because you know, 10 years ago, it was just Bitcoin and there was nothing else. That was your only choice. And then you know, there's a bunch of altcoins that came up and then Ethereum happened and there's all these smart contracts. So, but then DeFi happened and DeFi went from something where I didn't even know what it was. And I'm in the space very deeply to just being absolutely everywhere. And I would love to get the genesis because what was it like when, you know, at the very beginning when Compound was out, and you're like, hey, we're going to build an online, you know, finance protocol. People must have looked at you like you had three heads. Uh, you know, where did that get started? Where was the genesis? And, you know, how did you get that barrier and how did you see that far? So great questions and fun to talk about. So I joined Compound pretty much at the very beginning over three years ago. Um, And I joined actually, uh, my title is strategy lead. So I work on most of our business initiatives. 
Um, and I joined to sort of help with the, the fundraising initially, the seed round, which ended up being a very successful seed round. And so um, I basically joined at a time when the goal in terms of this uh, of a fundraise were to for us to figure out how to tell the story of what we were building and get people to buy into it. So the origin of the idea of Compound was how can we build a bank on Ethereum that does everything a bank does? And we and really our CEO and CTO, Ram and Jeff, kind of drilled down into that idea and realized, okay, what is the actual core functionality of a bank? Well, you can put assets in it and people and the bank can take those assets and let other people borrow them and it generates an interest rate. And that is like the basic functionality of a bank and that itself didn't exist uh, on Ethereum. So that's how sort of the idea of Compound got narrowed from a bank down into this very, very actual, actually like narrow, simple functionality. Enable a pool of capital that people can put money in and then other people can borrow money out of it. But starting with like in creating the pitch decks and doing the fundraise over three years ago, the that was like a process of discovery of what we were building. And it was like a process of discovery for ourselves of what we were building, even up to launching the thing in September 2018, like nine months after I joined. So it's like a constant sort of process of self-discovery. Like we didn't really know, I think, what the impact would be of what we were building. DeFi, the term didn't exist until one or two years later. We just thought that this was some financial infrastructure that didn't exist that would generate yields on idle assets, idle crypto assets. Every other asset on earth, basically, every other liquid asset on earth has markets that uh, for yield. And we thought we'd try to do that for crypto. And it obviously has come a long way since then. Yeah. So how did they sell you? Because I'm actually kind of curious, like when they when they came to you with this idea, like, hey, we're going to build, you know, uh, banking tools for the blockchain, you know, and, and how, the, how did they pitch you on the idea? Were, were you just like, yes, I'm ready because <laughs> you had been in Bitcoin since 2013 or I'm actually, you know, like what, what sold you on it? Yeah. So I, back at that time, I, I knew I wanted to go uh, full time with some crypto project. And I talked to a lot of different crypto projects. And the thing that struck me about Compound and talking to the team uh, and the CEO, which is more of a general startup thing but kind of relates to your last question as well, is the extreme focus on kind of like the next three months and what that looked like and what needed to be accomplished. And then actually a little bit of hand-waving about the general direction of after that. So, So to add a little bit more context, what I mean is like they knew what they wanted to build right then and they kind of knew that it would be hard to answer every possible question that could arise about the product that they were building in the future. So they had this very narrow focus on like, what are we going to accomplish? And we know all the questions that we don't know the answers to, and we'll deal with them when we get to them. And we sort of generally have an idea of how we'll deal with them. But right now they're not the focus. And what I really liked was like, it was really easy to see with like the high focus that they are really like get stuff done team. And then two, I really liked uh, and hadn't really thought about this, never having worked at a small startup really before this, the idea of not needing to solve every problem right now and knowing very, very well, like which problems you can punt till later, even though they're really important problems. Um, so I just like that this hardcore focus with still like 
you know, an assessment of every, every problem that they had to deal with. It wasn't, I like that sort of operation, I guess. It was more of a general startup thing that attracted me to, to Compound. So Calvin, who are the types of people that are using Compound so far and who do you envision using Compound in the future? Yeah. So over the past two and a half years since the first version of Compound launched, the kind of story the, of types of people who have used Compound, every six months, I would say kind of the the, the borrower and supply, the user types changed, basically. Initially, it was just Ethereum whales, like wallets that you could trace back to the Ethereum ICO, very crypto native, very willing to sort of use risky platform and experimental platforms with lots of assets. Over time, that evolved into crypto hedge funds, small crypto hedge funds, like $5 million, $10 million or less of assets. A little bit after that, applications started being built that integrated Compound. So like an Instadap launch that was like an interface for Compound that attracted a lot of users themselves. After that, we had a big effort to talk to crypto financial institutions, so custodians, exchanges, and we started seeing integrations of Compound with like Binance and OKX and other exchanges and custodians. And then now some of the largest trading firms in crypto uh, use Compound. So like the Celsius's and Three Arrows and Alameda are moving around um, tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars in Compound. Where we're going after this is actually, hopefully, non-crypto financial institutions. So challenger banks, neobanks, fintech startups, um, who actually don't have any crypto association today, but want to earn like the stablecoin interest rates on protocols like Compound. Okay, so that raises an interesting point. I just want to back up a second for our listeners who are newer to the space. Can you just more broadly talk about what's the difference between a bank that's built on the blockchain versus a, a traditional bank that everybody knows about today. Yeah. So Compound is not a bank. It's sort of like one way you might analogize it to what exists in uh, traditional banking is it's kind of like an API for interest rates. It's like you've got a technology that creates this marketplace for interest rates, and then anyone can build on top of it or integrate with it in sort of an API way. Uh, so like your actual bank, whether it's Charles Schwab or Wells Fargo, could theoretically integrate with Compound and let you earn interest from Compound. But some of the key differences between something like Compound and a Wells Fargo is Compound is this technology where the code is public, audit, auditable, and heavily audited, where any user can come and look at the code that makes up Compound and sort of verify that it works. And there's there's been probably about $50 billion of assets that have moved through Compound at this point without ever any loss of funds. So we're pretty con- I'm pretty confident that it that it works. And if I yeah. so if I if I take it back up for everyday users, this is actually uh, like you're saying it's an API endpoint. So wallets are already integrated with Compound, and I think. Uh, what are some of the wallets that you guys are already, I think Argent maybe one, you tell me, who are, who are some of the guys you're working with already? Yeah, Argent has an integration with Compound, I am token. And these wallets, like you can literally, I know it's crazy for people, but you can just have money inside of that wallet and it's just sitting there right now because you have 
your cryptocurrency or whatever, and then you just press a couple of buttons, and then boom, your money is deposited inside the smart contract protocol, and you're actually earning an interest rate like today. <laughs> and and it's crazy because we're looking at this, you know, just as a company, you know, we have a checking account, we're earning zero percent interest, like zero point one, you know, and then you saw if you look at some of these interest rates that you can make on some of these sites like DeFi rate or these other places where you can go and check these out, you're making single digit interest rates and sometimes double digits, depending on the level of risk you're willing to take. And as someone who's trying to manage a corporate treasury, we're not there yet. But, you know, if I'm earning 0.1% on the $500,000 in our business checking, I could be earning 6%, you know, with a stable coin, you know, through a interest rate protocol, like why wouldn't, why wouldn't I want to do that? We just saw Elon Musk put, uh, you know, $2 billion of Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Right. And like, what if, what if he could be earning, you know, 4% interest on his Bitcoin, you know, wrapped BTC on, uh, on the blockchain, you know, 2% of, uh, or 5% of $2 billion. That's a lot of money <laughs> uh, that he's just sitting on the table there. And that's what you're saying. You think you're going to see, so everyday people can do this too. Just download any one of these uh, wallets that are already plugged in to uh, one of these interest rate protocols, uh, and you can start doing it yourself, and you'll be earning higher interest than Elon Musk is earning on his Bitcoin. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so another thing I want to kind of talk about, because I thought it was um, interesting, and it's actually like in the news today. Uh, did you see this tweet? And I'm going to see if I can share my screen here. And it's actually from MetaMask. So for, for those people who aren't watching, get, who are listening to this on the podcast, I'm just taking a look here um, at, a, at a tweet about MetaMask. MetaMask is one of the wallets that a lot of people in the Ethereum space use. Uh, and this is from Tom Schmidt. So shout out, Tom. And it says, while no one was looking, MetaMask just started uh, printing money, <laughs> making 170K a day in fees or uh, at 20 million a day in volume. And I'm most of this is DeFi. If you look over here, you know, there's all sorts of DeFi protocols listed on the right-hand side. So this is printing, you know, real money for for people out here in the DeFi space. That run rate right there, you know, 150,000 plus a day, it's 50 million a year in profits. So I think this is pretty substantial and people are underestimating this. How far along are we from companies like Tesla starting to use this? I mean, you know, 10 years ago, people said Bitcoin, the balance sheet was crazy. Now Tesla's got it. How far are we away from companies? I don't think it's going to take 10 years from starting to use this type of technology. Yeah, it's a lot of what I spend my time on is trying to figure out how to build these rails for these companies to use it. Uh, I, I would say like from a technical perspective, the tools aren't quite there yet. Um, they're being built, but even... MetaMask, I believe, is working on sort of like an institutional enterprise version of its product. Its product today is really designed for like everyday users. That type of tooling, institutional level of custodying, custodying crypto needs to be built. Like uh, Elon Musk doesn't keep his Bitcoin, you know, in, in MetaMask or something like that. It's probably in like an extremely secure and compliant custody solution. Um, there are some regulatory sort of issues that need to be ironed out not obstacles, but just like uh, the regulatory landscape hasn't seen products like cryptocurrency before. So it needs to establish the standards that they want to have going forward around cryptocurrency. I think though, like in terms of kind of time, it should be definitely less than five years. I hope less than two. I spend time talking to some 
challenger banks and neo banks today who are extremely interested. If kind of those things I mentioned, like the regulatory path was clear and the tooling and technology existed that made it easy for them to use these types of DeFi and other products today, I think they would use it today. And, uh, but and, and what's a challenger bank? Because uh, I'm playing devil's advocate here for the user. Just real quick, yeah. what does that mean? And then how would how would like a normal person see that interaction? Right, right. So he, this is you know earlier on this cast, I sort of got really deep into the way a little bit about blockchain works, how Compound works. What the hope is is that something like a challenger bank, which is um, basically a startup bank that's online only. Uh, versus, you know, your Wells Fargo or your Chase have these have all this physical aspect, but really, like these days, banking just needs to be online for most people. Software, um, yeah, yep. So the hope is that their businesses are built around integrating internet services already for their customers. So if you're a customer of Current Bank or One or Monzo or N26, you have like an app. And a website, and that's how you manage your checking account, your savings accounts, uh, and the, and they have integrated all these services into their platform uh, that let you have a checking account, savings account, do wire transfers, things like that. And the hope is that one of these types of companies decides to integrate something like Compound, uh, where through their platform you could then start earning interest on Compound. And they can kind of abstract away all the complexity of the blockchain for you. You don't really need to worry about auditing the code, even though I said it's auditable because they've done it for you. You don't need to worry about like managing your own MetaMask and sending Ethereum transactions. They make it really easy for you, click of a button uh, to access these types of DeFi projects. I think I think you're absolutely right. Like anyone who doesn't think the traditional banking infrastructure are going to come in here and use this stuff or kidding themselves. And I also think it's going to start obviously with the startups at SF. So compound is a, you know, SF Valley, a company just like unstoppable domains. There's a lot of innovation happening there that I think other people, uh, they don't see, but it's happening quick. Well, and speaking of that, Calvin, where do you see the market developing in the future? Do you see more and more companies like compound, rising up in the next five, 10 years. Um, And kind of to backtrack on that, what does the competitive landscape look like for you guys right now? Are there already other companies like Compound out there right now, or are you sort of one of the front runners in the space? Well, I think we're one of the front runners, but it's certainly very competitive. There are other projects that are like more directly have overlapping functionality, like Aave is one. Um, MakerDAO, which was mentioned earlier, has like slightly competitive functionality in some ways. Interest rates are a huge market. So I think we'll keep seeing competition here uh, and keep seeing like different evolved takes on the problem that we're trying to solve. And I think the compound protocol kind of has a first mover advantage or brand advantage, but it will have to keep evolving and getting better and better. Uh, I think we've seen in DeFi that liquidity, the amount of users and volume for any given protocol can move very, very quickly to better solutions if they think another solution is better. But hopefully this competitive landscape just makes everybody sort of build better and build better products, um, and which ultimately benefits the users. Now, where do I think these things are going? I think a really succinct way of putting it, I actually saw uh, Bology tweet um, this sort of investor thought leader. And 
I thought it was a very simple way of putting it, which is a lot of fintech startups, like actually some of the challenger banks that I mentioned, what they're doing is trying to build these new front-end interfaces, like shiny online experiences on top of the existing financial rails. So like when you still write a check or send a wire or uh, to somebody through your regular bank, you're using these payment rails that are decades old and that weren't built for the internet. And so these fintech startups are trying to build like these new shiny services on top of it. But what DeFi is actually trying to do is replace those old rails entirely. They're kind of take out the back end and switch it out for something that's better, more transparent, faster, more trustworthy, and better engineered for the internet. So as much as you're able to, can you give us a little sneak peek into what Compound has in store for 2021? Um, it, you know, it could be anything related to the company. Also, how big is your company now, by the way? I know you talked about being the second employee, but that was years ago. Yeah, it's 15 people. It's actually not very big. I think we would have probably hired more if there wasn't a global pandemic uh, huh. over the past year. That does make but, it hard to do in-person interviews. Yeah, yeah. So we recently announced a few months ago our ne- our team, Compound Labs, next product, Compound Cash and Compound Chain, which is a its own blockchain uh, for Compound Cash. Uh, so we have this Ethereum-based interest rate protocol that has, I think, close to $8 billion in it right now, and that's working really well, and it's governed by its users. So if you're a user of uh, Compound, you get comp token and you're able to use this token to sort of like create proposals and vote on proposals for how you think the system itself should change and so that is separate from compound cash compound cash is now what our team is mostly focused on building and developing and launching compound cash will be a uh, cross-chain interoperable interest-bearing unit of accounts so what that means is it'll be able to move across many blockchains, not just stuck on Ethereum, and it will be used for value transfer across these different blockchains. And the idea is that in the future, it'll connect not just Ethereum with Solana and Polkadot, other blockchains like that, but also private blockchains like Corda, a bank consortium one, or Facebook DM, or one day even... Like- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Hyperledger, some central bank digital currency one day. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, so that was a word salad of uh, insider terms there for people listening. Uh, so, like, we're, we're going to have to unpack those and go through those um, at some at some future point in time. But just safe to say, Compound is deep in the mix uh, for banks. 100% your wallet, like, that you download your app, that you're downloading to your phone, can 100% function for all the financial products that you want already and and like significantly lower cost than you're currently paying all those guys at scale. Um, So can your wallet be a bank? 100%. (laughs) And we've, we've hit this. We've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast and it's people like Calvin are making that uh, happen. And you also mentioned Balaji and MakerDAO team. We're going to have them on here in the near future. Uh, So people can tune in if you want to know who those luminaries are in the crypto space um, and kind of get, get more information about this space because it's actually a lot to cover in a short period of time. Uh, I want to do a couple fun ones though. I'm actually just kind of curious. So, uh, you know, like this past year in DeFi, there was an entire 
uh, food category. I don't know how else to say it. So there's a lot of people in, people in DeFi and on crypto Twitter. They like to have fun, just like they have the secret Santa on the blockchain in December. Um, in DeFi over the summer, a lot of different groups were launching different games, I would call them. They're, they're like little money games, and they would create all these little food tokens. So I remember one was yams, right? And I, and I don't remember what all the other ones are. So Calvin, I was going to pass it to you. Like, what were some of your favorite food tokens over this past summer? And then, you know, how many yams are you currently holding, if any? Right. I don't have very many yams left, but I think you- I had a lot of yams at one point. <laughs> um, they're, they're, let, let me even see how many foods I can name. Sushi is one that's stuck around and become kind of a, a very good project. Pickle is still around. Sashimi. There's sashimi. There's mushrooms. <laughs> there's various. But yeah, I, I think like you put it exactly right as money games. Yeah. And all of those are different things that you can look up. So if you're at home, exactly. if you, if, and I don't know how you would query that. You'd like look up yams, yeah. blockchain, sushi, blockchain, yeah. uh, you know, pickle, blockchain, and then you'll, you'll be able to find it at home. And these are all these money games that people are playing. And it was kind of like, I don't know exactly how to how to characterize it, but they're it seems like they're having a good time and you know the blockchain was just completely congested with all these people uh playing mm-hmm. with these things. So well, they each one of them was kind of a game and an experiment that some developer or set of developers wanted to make. And I actually think what happened with the food naming thing is it made it really easy to name your project. Like normally if you create something or found something, you probably spend so much time thinking about what's the perfect name for it. But this way you could just pick a food and you have a name. And we saw this explosion of experimentation that was really the start of um, DeFi summer. Last year, DeFi really kind of blew up in a good way uh, starting in the summer. Wait, yeah, sorry, and- just to backtrack. I know, Matt, you gave some uh, background into this food token thing. But for listeners that are like, why is Calvin just rattling off names? <laughs> this sounds fun, but also what the heck is this? Can you sort of explain in very simple terms to somebody who's not familiar with uh, this, like what you're talking about? Pick one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, there were a... A bunch of so so DeFi are these like financial products built on blockchains that you can do things with assets. You can earn interest on them or you can trade them. Uh, essentially, are two of the core things. And there was a whole class of new projects that came up with that allowed you to do different things with your assets. And each one of these projects had their own token uh, that you could buy or use. And for some reason everybody started naming their tokens after foods um so you can think of it as like yeah there are just like 50 or 100 different new projects that sprung up um, and they all chose a food that they wanted to 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 call their project and, these, and it's really a fun name thing and these uh these tokens for people at home, so we've talked about tokens before on here, uh, but the tokens were actually serving a purpose in that they were helping to uh, ensure liquidity in a lot of cases was one of the use cases that they found as, as an incentive mechanism. So uh, imagine just like the New York Stock Exchange has a bunch of stockbrokers on the stock exchange. So this way, if you go to the New York Stock Exchange, you know, whenever the stock exchange is open, if you want to sell your shares of Tesla or sell your shares of Apple or buy shares of 
buy shares of whatever it is that you want on the S&P 500, IBM, Big Blue, right? So if you want to do that, there's a broker sitting at their end so you can take your order like immediately, right? And then uh, there's a thing in finance called slippage. And that basically says like, if you want to make a really big order or you want to sell a lot, you, you can see the price of Tesla is at 700 or something. And then if you sell you know, $10 million worth, the price may drop. And so you only get to sell them for 698. Or if you try to buy a lot, the price may slip up. So you pay 702. And, and that's actually not that bad of slippage on a very large order like that. Uh, you have the same thing on the blockchain though. And there's not a broker from, you know, Goldman Sachs sitting there willing to take the other side of your trade. So the question was in, in blockchain circles, how do you make sure that there's somebody there to uh, take those orders at all times? And the answer is you provide them with liquidity. And just like the New York Stock Exchange, if you want to be on the New York Stock Exchange, you get a seat license. And then you have certain responsibilities for trading, uh, buying and selling stocks uh, on the stock exchange there. And then, so you get responsibilities and you also get the benefit of being the one who gets to be the broker. So you get to make some money. It's usually a good, a good deal. Same thing on the blockchain now. <laughs> you have people who want to be this broker providing uh, the orders for buy sell flow. And what they're providing is called liquidity. And so how do you reward them? Well, you're not going to give them a seat license on the New York Stock Exchange. Maybe someone will build a DeFi protocol with seat licenses. That would be pretty interesting, in my opinion. Uh, but instead, they decided to award them with a, a token that they created. Uh, and these were these you know different types of governance tokens or what have you. And they started naming these tokens after food. And I think, Calvin, I think you're on to something. I agree with you. I think that they named them after food because it was easy, right? Because <laughs> like picking a name for your project takes forever. You know, like you like the spreadsheet, you try to come up with 300 different names. But the whoever it was, the first person, I don't remember, they named their project after food. And then that was just what all the liquidity pool tokens were. So it doesn't matter what you name them, but just think about it as these people are getting paid to provide the service of allowing you to buy and sell whenever you show up to buy and sell, you know, your stock on the blockchain, essentially. So that, that's kind of the analogy that happened over the summer and it was interesting because a couple of them failed right <laughs> so calvin like there were definitely a couple of like that just didn't work because they broke uh and that's why it's usually these early ethereum people that go in and play with them um and you know because people are learning on the fly uh that's it, just kind of how it's kind of what we're at so i like the food naming too because now you can walk around and say like hey i i, I got some yams and you can get you know people in the general public more interested they're like wait what are you talking about are you talking about like lunch or so that yeah i think that's smart i like that yeah all right well calvin i want to get into our next segment explain your tweet before we do that matt do you have anything else for calvin uh i think we can go on i'm actually kind of curious to see some of these tweets from calvin all right, yeah, Kevin, you're an avid tweeter, so lots of great stuff here. I'm gonna try to keep it down to, you know, three, two or two or three tweets, but there's a ton I want to call out. The first one I'll call out. This is a recent tweet from January 23rd. You said, "In 2012, I interviewed at a firm 41 floors above an Occupy Wall Street protest. My interviewer walked to the window and asked what I thought. I said their goals were good, but they'd be more effective changing the game from within. I discovered crypto in that job. Crypto is within." Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, it's actually the job I mentioned earlier uh, when I was introducing myself where I kind of discovered uh, Bitcoin and we had these crypto clients. Um, but I remember I, I, I graduated college in 2009. A major recession was still just ending basically and Occupy Wall Street was in full swing. And here I was trying to interview for like these very sort of corporate financial services jobs 
the the main reason I first took to Bitcoin was actually a little bit for its more anarchist ideals, which it has, I think, basically completely lost. Now it's just kind of a um, like an investment asset for large institutions. But any new tech. <laughs> anyway, yeah, 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 that's right. But uh, so at that time, I had a lot of ideas in my head about like, you know, how the financial system obviously was broken in some ways coming out of this larger session. Uh, and, and like the complaints of people in Occupy Wall Street were very valid. Like these were people who were very hurt by the powers that be in finance. And that experience was just a really, really good sort of like microcosm of it to have, you know, like this, uh, my white haired interviewer who'd worked in finance his whole life in a suit walked to the window and looked down at these protesters from 40 floors above them um with with like this awesome view and to comment on it (laughs) yeah yeah. but i got the job is the funny thing even saying that but yeah what i meant is really that like i agreed was going on right for me at the time was like i kind of agreed with occupy wall street but Clearly, here I am, like interviewing for like a corporate financial services thing. So I think I'm trying to reconcile, you know, those two things uh, with an explanation that you'd be better off uh, trying to actually change the financial system if you work in it. Like you're never going to change it from the outside. It'll be very, very hard. Just like with most things, you're not going to change anybody by sort of like forcing them to do anything. You need them to convince themselves really to change. And what I see happening with crypto actually ties back to a little bit what I, about what I said about Bitcoin starting out as very anarchist and not being very anarchist anymore is that's the way that it's sort of becoming a pillar of traditional finance now. And hopefully there's still a little bit of it that's, you know, a little bit out of the box that will eventually come out and slowly change uh, traditional finance from within kind of the thoughts that I was expressing. Yeah, I think that's really true, and it's really insightful. Thank you for explaining that. All right, the next tweet I found, this is from December 28th, 2020. Uh, This is actually a tweet thread. I won't read the whole thread, but the first tweet was, NFTs add new magic to internet content slash media. Social tokens slash DAOs add new magic to internet communities. Hypothesis, a critical missing piece is tooling that enables internet communities to co-create internet content slash media, squad creation to get squad wealth. Uh, So lots of pieces in here. I guess to start, we have talked about NFTs on a past episode, episode seven with Devin Finzer from OpenSea. You can go listen to that to learn more about NFTs. But we haven't really talked about social tokens or DAOs. So maybe give some context into what that is, first of all, and then explain more of what your hypothesis is that you tweeted. Mm -hmm. So NFTs, social tokens, and DAOs are three different ideas. Um, NFTs, as you know, are these non-fungible tokens that represent like digital property, usually digital media like crypto art on the blockchain. Social tokens, to date, I think humans are issuing kind of these tokens, like there's an Alex token, a Julian token for people named Alex and Julian. And they're sort of using it to create a fan club around them. People buy the token and like you might be able to redeem some of the token to spend like an hour with Alex or to like redeem some service of his. So um, it's sort of like I'm, uh, yeah, I I think fan club token isn't that inaccurate of a way to describe it. And then DAOs stands for 
decentralized autonomous organization, which is a which is a mouthful. But what it really is is like a community of people who generally each hold a token that allows them to be in this community. Uh, and the the goal of DAOs is actually to be able to have like organizations and companies where like everyone that's part of this organization has owns a little bit of the company or the organization by virtue of holding this token. And the organization tries to accomplish something together. Now, so these are three separate ideas, but they've come together a lot. I think people who are interested in one of them tend to be interested in all of them. And there are like, like people with social tokens who have formed DAOs and make NFTs and sell them and things like that. So what I'm saying in that tweet is there's a lot of, there's something magical about each of these three things. NFTs, a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around them because it's like you're buying this digital image file. People are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on them for a token that represents it. You don't even get a physical thing. And yet there's like fervor around it. People love this idea. People are spending really millions and millions of dollars on it. Uh, social tokens also, like very smart people are spending a lot of time on these on these things. But what I what I think is really missing is to make it really like some of what I'm calling magic is there's like this very human element to it. Like when an artist creates an NFT, how do you really value the thing? Well, it depends on like, there's no like quantitative or financial way for you to value this thing. And when a, a person makes a social token and they say like, oh, you can redeem this token for an hour of my time. It's still just a social contract. It's not like technology that's making it happen. You just like basically send them an email and are like, can I redeem some of my social token for this? So what I'm really getting at there is like, what are really technology enabled ways for these three things to interact? And I think a cool thing that could exist that doesn't exist is allowing for example, like a group of people that all own a token to make something together in a technology enabled way. So a really simple idea would just be to like craft a tweet together. Like imagine this DAO, a community of people who each have some social token, were able to actually directly interact with like the Twitter API and generate a tweet for Alex or Julian, or whomever. And right now that doesn't happen. You might be able to like call up Alex and be like, hey, I'll spend a bunch of tokens if you tweet this thing. But I think these things aren't that cool unless they're really technology enabled. I think I think I can imagine like Minecraft, like you can imagine like getting a group of like 12 people together and then they build a world together and then they could sell that as NFT art. Right. And then they could split the proceeds from working on that concept together. Yep. So I think it's going to happen. We're, we're we are getting there um, and it's just going to take take time to get there. So Calvin, I guess before we uh, we're going to wrap it up here, uh, we'd love for you to plug yourself. How can our users use your products? You know, and what are the most uh, easiest first things for them to do? Um, how would you suggest for the people listening at home, they can go and start playing with this world of DeFi uh, from their cell phone? Yeah. So I think if you're starting out and you want to try compound, probably the easiest way is to go through Coinbase and actually use Coinbase wallet. 
Coinbase itself has um, some some tutorials uh, in their earn product about how to use Compound. And I think they'll actually even give you like $3 or $10 or something to try com- Compound Free out. Free money. <laughs> yeah. Then their Coinbase wallet product has a direct integration with, with Compound as well, um, where you can just very easily go in and out of Compound with your assets. Otherwise, our website's at compound.finance. We have a, a chat group at compound.finance slash discord and if you go there we're always happy to talk to you and help out perfect yeah join uh another discord so you need to make sure you have at least 30 or else you're not really in uh or else you're not really in crypto uh and calvin again it's been a pleasure having you on the show and thanks for talking DeFi with us today thank you thanks calvin thanks everybody for tuning in we'll be back again soon with another episode of the unstoppable podcast I hope you enjoyed this episode of the unstoppable podcast if something i've said today resonated with you please rate subscribe download the podcast and share this episode on social media with your network this helps other people find us and remember the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends we can continue the conversation on twitter by tweeting your questions thoughts or ideas to me at matthew e gould we look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening